Well, Merry Christmas. Good to see you all here today, and thank you, kids and everybody, band, uh, has been part of the service. Uh, welcome to all of you. If you're here for the first time, we just want to extend a special welcome to you. And uh, for those of our church family that can't be here but are joining us online, we're glad you're here with us as well. Let me just ask, uh, do we have any kids in here today? Yeah. That is great. You know, a few years back, my wife was telling my daughter about this Christmas Eve service and said, we get to stay in and listen to Daddy. And she said, that's going to be so boring. <laughs> so if you're thinking that here, don't worry. We're going to keep it a little bit shorter than usual. In fact, kids, if I ask you a question today, your job is to yell out the answer, okay? You got that? And parents, we know gonna, there's going to be some wiggles and some noise, and that's just okay. We love kids around here, and uh, we're going to roll with it. And so um, if they do get a little too fussy, it's also on on the screen out in the lobby here, and there's some nice couches and stuff. So if you got a real little one that uh, you need to take out, that's fine as well. So let me ask you, kids, um, what's your favorite Christmas song? Mary, did you know? Jingle bells, Feliz Navidad. Mary, did you know? That seems like a popular one. Jingle bells, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, how about White Christmas? Any kids? A little bit of, uh, I'm dreaming. No? No? Okay, that's all right. How many of you were excited to see the snowflakes, the giant snowflakes coming down? Yeah. How many of you Grinchy dads like me were also excited that it doesn't look like you're going to have to shovel today? <laughs> Woo! Yeah, the best of both worlds. Okay. Um, so anyway, it could, snow, it could stick by the time we get done with church. You never know. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, one of my favorite Christmas songs is that one we just sang, Oh Holy Night. And as I was thinking and praying about what to share here today, there was a line from that song that just kept running through my mind. And that was this, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. A weary world rejoices. And you know, I think something most of us can identify with is that feeling of being weary. Maybe it's a weariness of um, adulting. Now, kids, I, I know kids, you don't understand because you take a 20-minute nap and you pop right back up and have lots of energy, especially on Christmas with the extra sugar, Right. But adults, yeah, we know. There's just a lot of responsibilities. There's a lot of stuff, and that's your parents get a little bit tireder, right? So sometimes um, it can just be the weight of responsibility in life that makes us weary. Um, I know something I feel often is that, that struggle of feeling like you never catch up. We were, we were getting done with service here um, just this Sunday, Saturday service, Sunday service, exhausted, looking forward to going home and just chilling a little bit Sunday afternoon. And as we're doing some stuff, trying to get out of here ready for Christmas, I get a phone call, come home now. The rain or the living room is raining. That's never good. And sometimes it's just like, oh, no, just another thing. And it's so exhausting, right? Um, for some, it's just that disappointment that you had really hoped for something, and then your hopes were dashed. Some of you, you just, I mean, I remember we called our service last year, hopefully, and we were all hoping that this year would just go back to normal completely, right? <laughs> Here we are again. I saw this funny meme going around 
on the internet today, and it said, hey, nobody like say 2022 is my year. Let's just let it sort of slide in under the radar. <laughs> For some, I think it's a weariness of grief. There is a weariness that grief brings. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see Jesus' disciples, and it says they're exhausted from grief. And there's a weariness to our souls that grief brings. And man, some of you, uh, this has been a year of loss for you. There's been some deep loss that you've experienced, maybe the loss of a loved one or the loss of a relationship. And, and, And this Christmas is a little harder because of that. For some, it's just that, that weariness of working hard and getting what you wanted and then realizing that it's never enough to fill that hole within your soul. And see, I think this is something, um, kids, you guys know you're going to get some really cool presents here, probably tonight or tomorrow, some of you, right? And yet, you know, those things, they're going to make you happy for a while, Right? But if, if we rely on those things to make us happy, they never actually fill that thing up within us that is, is looking for joy and peace and happiness. And there's a hole in our soul. And I can identify with this. I'm pretty type A, driven, like to get things done. And it's so easy to allow your worth and your feeling of, um, you, you know, just your feeling of, of success to come from what you achieve. And then to work hard and get it. And then to wake up the next day with that, that pit in your stomach going, I, I got it, but that didn't fill this empty part in my heart. It didn't fill this thing in my soul. And I think a lot of times there's just this weariness that comes on our life because of that. And for some, I think it's really um, a failure. The weariness of personally failing, or maybe you've been let down by someone. And it's like another year has come and gone, and you're still struggling with the same thing. You know, we have four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're ancient texts that were written uh, probably on scrolls originally, written by eyewitnesses and people who spoke to eyewitnesses of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They were treasured by the early gatherings of followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire and copied and passed around carefully and treasured. And then a while later, they were compiled into what we've known, we know as the New Testament. And then along with the Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament, these make up our Bible. And what I want to do over the next about 20 minutes or so is to weave together what these four writers tell us about the birth of Jesus or what we call the Christmas story. And I want to see what they might have to say to offer hope to, to a world full of weary hearts, to offer joy so, to a weary world. And so the first one is Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. And he starts out his account of the birth and the life of Jesus in this way. It says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, right off the bat, in this account, of the, he wants to let us know that this is the account of the long-awaited Messiah. Messiah is um, the word that was translated into Christ. It's, it means the same thing, Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And that's where we get the word Christmas. It's a service of celebrating Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so he lets us know this is 
the account of the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for for hundreds of years. And then he does a really interesting thing because he goes on and the next 17 verses are all genealogy, a bunch of names. Now, um, I'm not going to read these because some of the names are really hard to pronounce. Now, if any kids would like to come up and volunteer to read all these names, um, let's see, there's um, Amon, uh, Zerubbabel, uh, that's a good one. Uh, no, no, no volunteers? Okay, we'll just, we'll go past that then. But I think it's really interesting. And what I want to say about this is like, if you're trying to write a best-selling novel, you probably don't want to start it with a genealogy, just saying. So if we got any aspiring authors out there, you know, just remember that. But why did he do this? Well, the reason is because there were over 300 prophecies of the Messiah that were given um, to the people of Israel hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. God spoke through prophets and gave them prophecies about the Messiah. And Matthew is going to go on to show us how so many, oh, well, all of those, but Matthew will highlight how some of those are fulfilled. And one of the things was that the Messiah would come from a certain lineage. And so he's showing us that Jesus, the Christ, is connected to all the right people, all the way back to Abraham. But then he does something else that's really strange in here, and you may not pick up on it if you just read it real quick. But he includes a bunch of people who knew real failure and drama in life. I mean, there's a bunch of names in here. And this is a G-rated service, so we won't um, go into their stories because there's some R-rated stories in here. But you have people like Judah and Tamar, David and Bathsheba, Rahab, and she had a title to her name. And why, um, why would he do that? See, this is something, if you were trying to build the case that Jesus was the son of God, the, the anointed one, you wouldn't include all these names that would bring up all this drama and all this uncomfortable feeling in good Jewish readers. You knew all the stories behind these names, right? But Matthew includes them in there. And then finally, in verse 18, Matthew gets to the account of Jesus' birth that we know as the first Christmas. Here's how he starts. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Let me just say, that wasn't the gossip going around town. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, there's all kinds of drama going on right now in these first couple of verses, right? In fact, uh, ladies, I mean, there is drama here more than in your Hallmark specials, right? I got roped into watching one last night, got put on, and I only got sat there because it was filmed in Hawaii, and I love Hawaii. So, um, I had no idea how it was going to end either. <laughs> but you have all this drama right in the beginning of Matthew's account of Jesus. You have a young woman bearing the judgment of a community who believes her to be a complete moral failure. You have the drama of this young man who's confused, wondering, how did I fail? What did I do wrong? I was looking forward to a life married to this woman I love, and he's bearing the weight of a failed relationship, being torn and not knowing what to do. But Matthew goes on, he says, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She 
will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, the deliverer, salvation, because he will save his people from their sins. And right away, the reason that Matthew includes all these people that have failed in such dramatic ways is because he wants to remind us of the real purpose behind Christmas, the real reason Jesus came. The real problem was the brokenness of the entire human race. See, sin means missing the mark, the failure to live our lives in proper relationship with God, serving him. In fact, we're told elsewhere in the New Testament that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every single one of us, right? Kids, your parents didn't have to teach you how to be selfish, right? That comes naturally, doesn't it? It's, it's hard not to be. Every one of us, no matter how old we are, we've sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. Sin separates us from God. It drives a wedge between us and God. And, and what Matthew wants to highlight right off the bat is that Jesus came to save us from the thing that separates us from God. He goes on, he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. This is the message of Christmas, that God came in the flesh to be with us, to a people who are caught in the failure of their destructive lifestyle in spite of sin, in spite of our sin. In fact, for the very reason to deal with the problem of sin and brokenness, he came. Later, we find out actually why this is such a big deal to, to Matthew. In chapter 9, we, we learn that Matthew actually, he's a tax collector. If you know anything about the first century uh, Jewish culture, he was ostracized. He was despised. He was hated. And yet Jesus one day shows up at his tax collector's booth. And before he ever changed his ways, Jesus looks at him and says, hey, I want you to follow me. Jesus speaks life and destiny and forgiveness into, into his life. He forgives him. He calls him into his service. He gives him a chance to live a life that's part of a far bigger story. And it's so cool that his account is the first in the New Testament. He I probably had no idea we would be reading the story, the account of Jesus that he wrote here 2,000 years ago. So Matthew, he starts with God with us, and he ends with God with us. In fact, one of the last things that Matthew writes down after he hears Jesus say it was this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And see, that was good news for them now. It's good news for us because in the weariness of your failure, your personal failure, Jesus says, I have come to forgive you and be with you. And to a weary world, Matthew, in his account, brings joy and hope to those whose failure has made them believe that God would never want them. No, he says, I am with you. I came to bring healing and forgiveness to your life, to give you a second chance. Now, Mark, 
Mark's account of Jesus' life is a little different because he doesn't actually even mention the birth of Jesus. He wants to immediately get us to who Jesus is and the purpose of why he came. And so Mark writes this, in the beginning of the the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. See, the word good news is the same word as gospel. And so when we preach the message of Jesus, it's good news for a weary world. It's good news for broken people. And if, if the gospel has been um, presented to you or more, more typically lived out in a way that is not good news in your life, I just want to apologize on behalf of followers of Jesus, because we don't always live like that very well. But the gospel for thousands of years, this is message that is good, good news to a weary world. He goes on a little later. He says this, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In the kingdom of God, this is a big concept. But the kingdom of God is is the realm, the place, wherever God's will is done the way that his heart desires. And so in the future, we'll see when Jesus returns, we'll see the kingdom of God come in, in a way that we can only barely imagine right now and heal all the brokenness of the world. But Jesus comes, and at his first coming, he says, I'm coming because the kingdom of God is breaking in here and now. And as people, as you and I and my disciples and fo- my followers go out into every corner of this world and live their lives like Jesus is their king, there's healing to brokenness. There's joy. There's purpose that comes in life. And he says, in order to be part of that, you have to repent, which literally means turn, change your mind, turn around. You were going this way, away from Jesus. You turn around and you go this way toward Jesus. And you live your life for the kingdom of God. Another place, he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all the things you get so spun out on in life, you know, all those things that you think will feed your soul, will fill that hole inside, and you work so hard, and you get them, and then they let you down, and it doesn't fill that empty part. He said, live for my purposes, and then there's going to be this amazing thing that happens that you'll find that hole inside of your soul is filled as you live for with a purpose, and as you live with meaning. See, the only way to fill that thing inside of your soul, that hole, is to live for something bigger than yourself. And that's what Jesus and Mark invites us into, which is why he tells us at the end of his gospel, and it's very short, he says this, he says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation, be part of this mission that God has for you. And you're going to find meaning there, and you're invited into it, just like Matthew was invited into it, no matter your failure. So Mark brings hope and purpose to a weary world that lacks meaning. Now, Luke. Luke is an academic. He's super smart. He's a physician. He's a scholar. And so he starts his account like this. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I write an orderly account, or I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That line always reminds me of Bill and Ted, if anybody remembers them. I don't know. Um, Most excellent. Anyway, Kids, how many of you wish your name was Theophilus? 
I do. That's a really cool name. Anyway, um, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. And what's so significant about this is that he says, many. You see, in ancient history, um, the fact that we have four actual accounts of the life of Jesus is amazing. Because in ancient history, only really super important rich people like kings had accounts written of their life. Normally, they paid someone to do it, and then they got the, the executed if they didn't write it right, you know? So we have four accounts of the life of Jesus. This is a historical marvel. And he says many. So apparently, there's even many more people that wanted to record the life of Jesus because he was so incredibly Profound, amazing, miraculous, his life. There's, there's not words to explain or describe it. And so he says, many have. And he says, I carefully investigated. I, I interviewed Mary. I went back. I, I spent time. I really researched this thing. And you can go fact check me. You can go talk to all these people who are still alive that witnessed Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. You can go check this out. And he anchors, he anchors his account of Jesus in historical events. In fact, the reason that you know the name Caesar Augustus or Corinius, that's a hard one, is because we read it every year in the Christmas story. Other than that, you would have long forgotten it in high school history class. But the reason we know that name is because it's a footnote in the story of the first Christmas. And so he anchors, he says, the certainty. I want you to know that, that, that you can trust this. And he anchors, he anchors his gospel, his, that's his good news of Jesus in history as an event that actually happened. He brings hope for a weary world. And he said it's not based on just some, you know, moral teaching or a philosophy of religion. That'll let you down. It's based on an actual event, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Then he moves on to the beginning of the Christmas story. And actually, he moves on to a tired, disappointed, older couple who couldn't have children. And as painful as that is in our culture today, it was so difficult for them at that point because all the neighbors and the people in their religious community would think they did something wrong, they sinned, they did something to make God not pleased with them. That somehow God must not see them, must not be there, or must not care for them, or they upset God and made him angry and to this couple who were told actually faithfully served God for their whole life, an angel comes and says this, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. And some of you in the room need to hear that. Your prayer has been heard. That he hears you. He sees you. He knows your name. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. Zechariah, God sees you. He hears you. He cares for you. He does care. I know the circumstances of your life have made you doubt and question that. But believe that he's there. Your disappointment in life is not reflective of God's care for you. Luke goes on in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, what God said happened, happened. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. 
The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And she's a teenage girl at this point. She's probably thinking, what did I do to earn the favor of God? Then the angel brings good news next to the shepherds. And we heard about them in the Christmas story earlier. And you know, the shepherds, they were outsiders in the culture. They were, they were, I mean, they hung out with sheep. They had to like scrape stuff off their shoes every night. And yet the angel comes to these outsiders. And, and here's what it says. It says, you know, after the angel brings them good news, it says in verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. See, the, the, the message of Christmas in Luke's account to a weary world is that God's favor is on you. His favor is on you and me. And the message of Jesus, that Jesus came in a point in history and lived and died for you and me, is, is, tells us that it's not what's happening in our life right now that determines if God cares for us. It's the fact that he did that for us that Jesus came and died for us. And Luke, he brings joy to people who are weary from experiencing great disappointment in life, who have been wondering, is God even there? Does God even care? And the, and the message is, yes, he sees you. And not only is he with you, Emmanuel, he's for you. He's on your side. The fourth gospel, and the final one is this, it's John. And we've been preaching through the book of John here on Saturdays and Sundays in our services. And uh, we'll launch back into it at the end of January or February. But John starts his gospel out a little bit different. In a departure from the other gospels, John starts out with this giant cosmic eternal significance of the birth of Christ. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he picks up on this concept, the Greek concept logos, which, which was a logic or a purpose that holds the universe together. And he says, let me tell you, there is a logic and purpose, but it's not a force. It's not the universe. His name is Jesus. And he gives us the cosmic significance of the coming, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He goes on to tell us that it was through Jesus, actually, that everything was created. He says in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. In other words, the word here is tabernacled. Like in Exodus, where he camped out in the midst of his people, his presence with us. Again, Emmanuel, he's God with us. John tells us that in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I think it's pretty amazing because at the end of John's life, when, when we believe he wrote this gospel, he had seen um, at this point these Christian gatherings were being persecuted all over the Roman Empire. There's great persecution. It was very hard to be a follower of Jesus. He had seen all his buddies that followed Jesus. Out of all the disciples, the original disciples of Jesus, he was the only one who didn't die a martyr's death. 
He'd seen them tortured. He'd seen them, he'd heard the stories of them being killed for following Jesus. And yet in the midst of all that pain, he, he recognizes that nothing can stop the light of Jesus. And the message of Jesus just keeps going out and people keep embracing it. And that message keeps going on and on. And here we are 2,000 years later. Nothing can put out the light. But John then says that even though the true light had entered the world, not everyone embraced him. That's the tragedy. That many people actually love darkness and didn't want to embrace the light. But here's the good news. Gospel. But, verse 12, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believed in his name. And John is trying to communicate this, this huge idea. In fact, he does something very unique here. He puts together two words in the Greek language that it's the first time they've been used like this in all of ancient Greek. And I was going to pronounce them, but they're hard. And so I thought I'd tell you my favorite Greek word, which is baklava. <laughs> Any kids tried baklava? No? You got to tell your parents, get you some baklava. It's amazing. Yeah. I went to Greece years ago and ate some baklava. Okay, but these two words are believe in. He puts these two words together in an unusual way. Because in the Greek, there's not really a word for trust. Just believe. And he's like, no, it's not just enough that I believe there's a chair sitting over there. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. The point is, I, for those who believe in enough to go sit down in that chair and put their trust in it. And that's the concept here. In fact, these two words, John actually uses the same term in one of the most famous Bible verses in all of history. Many of you know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, later John will record... Jesus also saying, I have come to give them life, to give you life, to give me life, and in abundance. In other words, life eternal that goes on, but also life of a quality here and now that is the way that Jesus meant us to live it, where that thing in our soul finds rest and fulfillment in him. Life now with purpose and meaning. And so John brings hope into a weary world that's caught in darkness, that you can experience light and true life in him by personally receiving Jesus, by embracing what he did for you, by fully placing your faith and trust in him, the Son of God, who died and rose again for you. Four accounts of Jesus' life that bring good news Hope, light, and joy to us. Matthew's message to us is in spite of the weariness of failure in your life, God has come to be with you. And your failure does not mean that God is, isn't interested in you or somehow you are disqualified. On the contrary, he came to give his life for you, to give you forgiveness and freedom. Mark gives us hope and joy 
purpose and meaning for those who are weary of living life trying to strive for things that never actually fill your soul. And Jesus, in fact, later at another time, he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I'm just guessing that there's some in this room that long for that, to know that. Live my way, and you will find rest for your souls. Oh, it doesn't mean life will always go easy. That was never a promise. But you will find peace deep inside of your heart. So this year, maybe as you think through this, the question you need to ask yourself is, what am I really living for? I'm guessing there's many of you here that, that want to know that peace. Luke's message, in the midst of disappointment, what makes this the most wonderful time of the year isn't necessarily what's happening in my life right now, as some of you know. It's what happened at a specific point in history where God came to be with us and to die for us. And he rose again. John, in the weariness of darkness and confusion of life, says light and real life are available to you. This is personal. Yes, God so loved the world but he loved the world one person at a time. He died for the sin of the world, your personal sin, to be your personal savior. And the promise of eternal life is if you trust in Jesus and what he did for you, you can have the hope and assurance that you can have peace with God and spend eternity with him. Would you stand? And as we close and sing this last song, I just want to encourage you. You know, for some, I hope you will actually express to Jesus your trust in what he did for you when he died and rose again tonight. That you know you're a sinner and you need his forgiveness and just call out to him for grace in life. You can do that in your own words as we sing this song, quietly or out loud. Otherwise, maybe there was something that really struck you. Would you just pray about that and give that to him? I'll come back up and pray for us.